Today we've reached John chapter 12, and I'm very excited about this passage that we're going to be doing today, because as I've spent time in this chapter, I feel I've been spending time with Jesus, and he's been impacting me deeply as I've been reading it and soaking in these words. And my goal for today is that all of us have a bit of blindness and to challenge us how we would live if we could fully see, if we could really see this Jesus. So I'm going to give us uh, an, uh, an introduction, which is going to be quite brief, and then we're going to go through the seven challenges which are on the sheet that you've got in front of you, which are in chapter 12, and then my challenge and yours as it comes out of this. So this is the last time I'm going to be showing you this slide because we are right at the bottom in chapter 12. This is the plan for the first half of John, which is sometimes called the book of signs because there are seven signs in there, beginning with the turning water into wine at the, at the wedding and ending with Lazarus being raised from the dead, gradually building up in their intensity and Those signs form this book of signs, which is Jesus' public ministry. From now on, he's just spending time with his disciples and his death and resurrection. This is his public teaching and miracles. And begins with a prologue, an introduction for what's going to be happening. We meet Jesus in the prologue. And now now this is like the reflecting part at the end that matches the beginning. And so we've come then to this point and we're going to be looking at the, um, the, the word that Jesus has. And so I'm going to challenge you as we go through, we're going to see a spectrum of belief. How do people react to Jesus? And the real, if I'm to sum up this, this epilogue, this chapter 12, I'm going to say that it's like this, that back in chapter 1, Jesus' was, ministry was announced. This is the one who's coming from God. And now we come to this point, well, what happened? How did this work? How was he received? What was the result of him coming? So let's look at the chapter then you've got in front of you. Um, we begin with uh, actually the last part of chapter 11 really belongs in this. Now the Jewish feast of Passover was near and many people went up to Jerusalem from the rural areas before the Passover to cleanse themselves ritually. Thus they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple courts, what do you think, that he won't come to the feast? Now, chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should report it so they could arrest him. That's what we saw at the end of last time, that they decided that this was too much. They were going to have him put to death. So then we move into the first of our stories here. Mary anoints Jesus. And six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom he'd raised from the dead. So they prepared a dinner for Jesus there. Martha was serving, and Lazarus was among those present at the table with him. And you can see that Lazarus isn't mentioned again until until verse 9, and it kind of brackets this section. And we have the story. Then Mary took three quarters of a pound of expensive aromatic oil 
from pure nard. That actually is a plant that was grown in India, the north of India, and so it was. It would have to be traded across, uh, brought across to Palestine from that place. And uh, the world trade was actually quite sophisticated in those days. Things were, were bought and sold, but it was expensive. Anointed the feet of Jesus. She then wiped his feet with her hair. Now the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also report a time when a woman washed Jesus, uh, anointed Jesus. Um, it seems that Luke's talking about a different account, but Matthew and Mark are talking about this same account, because Matthew and Mark say it happened in Bethany, and there's quite a lot of differences with Luke's account. Luke seems to be a different account. So there seem to be two times when Jesus had someone come and a woman come and and uh, anoint his feet. But um, here she comes and pours this oil over him. The way that they would have been celebrating a meal, they didn't sit on chairs like we do. They would actually lie down, and they would, or their heads would be towards where the food was, and their feet would be sticking out. And so it would be easy to access somebody's feet and their legs and to pour something over them. So Mary did this amazing act of worship to Jesus. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this oil sold for 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor? Now, I'm just going to tell you something. The value of that that um, ointment, that, that the oil that she poured on Jesus, was about, in today's currency, in Canadian currency, about $50,000. Now, I did like a shock go through there. $50,000 gone just like that, like poured out. So maybe you can like, you can understand that Judas might have said this. $50,000 poured out in a moment and it's gone. What a waste. So here's a challenge. And, uh, he says, why wasn't this money given to the poor? But he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money box, he used to steal what was put into it. We learn later that this was the incident that finally turned Judas into one decided him to betray Jesus. This was the incident. So uh, Jesus said, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. So we don't know if she knew that Jesus was going to die and be buried or whether it was like, like a prophetic act that she did, not really understanding why it was. But this is what Jesus is saying. So just think about this for a moment. This would have been kind of shocking if you'd been there, startling. What does it say about Mary and about what she thought of Jesus? That she actually could see who he was and his value. He could, she could actually, there's something that she got that none of the others got. She got who he was. She saw his value. Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus when she anointed him and somebody said, what a waste. Can you think, what's it like for Jesus? You know, why give that to him? Like, what a waste. It's just Jesus. I mean, that's what it must have felt like. And for him, he had such honor from this woman. Ah, finally, somebody gets me. Somebody sees who I am. But my own disciples, all they can see is money's being wasted on me. 
So I want us to walk with Jesus through these passages, not just looking at him, but with him. What did this feel like for Jesus going through this? Such a, a, a recognition from Mary that must have just lifted his soul. Somebody gets me after all of this. Somebody sees who I am. But then my own disciples are like this. And then verse 9. A large crowd of Judeans learned that Jesus was there, and so they came not only because of him, but also Lazarus to see one raised from the dead. Now, this was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and um, about 60 years later, his, a historian wrote, and this is probably exaggerated, but he wrote that two and a half million people would come to the Passover each year. So probably exaggerated, but even so, there were a lot of people in Jerusalem at this time. And so um, the, when it talks about crowds, these were quite real significant crowds. These were not just a handful of people. These were massive crowds that were, were coming there. So I want to uh, just, um, actually, let's move on to the next story, and then I'll come back to that. Um, so the next, the next story is, involves these crowds. Uh, oh, the chief priests have got a, a, their reaction to this verse 10. So the chief priests plan to kill Lazarus too. On a, for on account of him, many of the Jewish people from Jerusalem are going away and believing in Jesus. Uh, just my, mindless that they should even think that that would somehow change the truth. So then we have the, the story with the donkey. The next day, a large crowd who'd come to the feast, having heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And so the, we have this celebration now. They began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a little donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Do not be afraid, people of Zion. Look, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things when they first happened. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and these things had happened to him. There was continual testimony from the crowd who'd been with him. And this is the smaller crowd who'd been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. So the crowd went out to meet him because they'd heard that Jesus had performed this miraculous sign. Now, you notice I put the color coding in there, and that's just to emphasize the way John tends to write, where he kind of brackets things and puts a crucial thing in the middle and then puts round it series of events that start and then finish. And it's a, so it's just a beautiful semi-poetic way of writing that he, he does. I'm just drawing attention to that. And um, what we see then in this is some more reactions to Jesus. And here is this crowd, they're just cheering him, they're going crazy, here's the guy who's going to be our king, because he can even raise people from the dead. So like, imagine an army that you can just raise soldiers that die, you can just raise them from the dead. It's invincible. What a king, the Romans couldn't possibly beat us. They're getting so excited about this. And what I want to look at here is this spectrum of belief that we're getting here. So we're getting Mary at the top, and Mary has got, she sees who he is. 
And then we get the disciples here who don't understand that Jesus is, is riding a donkey and what's going on here. Uh, we get the crowds who want him to be their kind of king and the Pharisees who want to kill him and to kill Lazarus. And this is the spectrum. So if we go back to our passage, we look at the reaction to get at the bottom there. Therefore, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you can do nothing. Look, the world has run off after him. But let's step for a moment into Jesus' shoes at this time. What does it feel like to him? He's coming to the city. He's riding on a donkey. And he sees this incredible celebration. But do you think he's happy about it? He knows it's not going to last very long. He knows it's fake. These people don't see him. They just want to get something out of him. They just want him to do, to be their kind of king. And so it's probably, he's probably not rejoicing at this point, but really sad because he knows the truth of what's happening here. So, oh, and the bottom of our spectrum of unbelief. Let's look at the very bottom. Of course, we have Judas. And what's appalling about Judas is he's actually seen everything. Like he's seen Lazarus being raised. He's seen all of these things. He's been on the inside, and yet he has rejected it. So he's worse than the crowds. Now we come to something very interesting. We have uh, some Greeks appear. So let's uh, look at this section. Now, some Greeks were among those who'd gone up to worship at the feast. So it could be that they decided to become Jews, or it could be that they would just decided they would stay, uh, they wouldn't um, become Jews, but they would, they would still believe in God enough to come to the feast. But anyway, they've heard about Jesus, and they're really interested. They're Gentiles. They've heard of Jesus. So they approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip, what do we do about this? Um, these are Gentiles. Uh, Andrew, what should we do? Andrew says, yeah, we should take, we should go and talk to Jesus. So they both went and told Jesus. Now, we don't know at this point whether they're with them at this point and they're part of the next dialogue or they're not, because that's not the important thing. The important thing is the reaction this has on Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour's come. The hour's come. Wow, Jesus is saying, already the Gentiles are turning. Like, this isn't supposed to happen till after Pentecost. This, like, the big harvest isn't supposed to happen, but it's happening already. This must be the moment. And this kind of like a shock going through Jesus. This is it. I'm about to die. We're here right now. And he says, I tell you the solemn truth. And he tells them three things. And we've got some groups of three coming up now, which build in intensity. And these are the three things. The first is, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And of course, he's talking about himself here. You know, I'm not going to produce fruit unless I die. But then there's going to be big fruitfulness, including these Gentiles. And then he generalizes a little bit. The one who loves his life destroys it. And the one who hates his life in this world preserves it for eternal life. In other words, if you try and hang on to your life and grab it and live it to the full, you'll end up by destroying it. But actually, if you let go of your life and hating is like uh, 
it's, it's relative to loving, you know, you're willing to give your life up in this world, preserves it for eternal life. And then he makes it even more general, and this is the punchline. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. So where I am, my servant will be too. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And this, if you like, is the punchline for the entire passage, because this is really the question. And he's, if you like, he's giving this to the Gentiles. He's giving this to everyone. Look, I'm about to die. I'm about, this is the cost of bringing forth fruit. Uh, do you know who I am? Are you willing to follow this kind of leader, the kind of Jesus who's going to die and who's going to demand your life as well? Are you willing to do that? And if you like, this is the punchline of the whole passage. This is the center of gravity of it all. This is what Jesus finally reveals, what he's calling people into. He says, I'm about to die. And this is, the, are you willing to follow this kind of king that calls you into this kind of life? So then we have, uh, the next, the next, uh, little piece of, um, discussion from Jesus, or speaking from Jesus, we have some more threes. The first one, he says, now my soul is greatly distressed, and what should I say? The first one, so so just pause a moment. Jesus is greatly distressed at this point. You know, we lose contact with the fact sometimes that Jesus is human, like us. And like this is, he suddenly, like it's hit him really hard. I'm about to suffer more pain than any human has ever suffered. And it's coming right about to happen. And it actually it distresses his body to feel this. And he says, my soul is greatly distressed. What should I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? No, but it's for this very reason I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then the last point a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And so this voice comes from heaven, and then we get the reaction to that. The crowd stood there and heard the voice and said that it thundered. Others said an angel had spoke to him. Jesus said, the voice has not come for my benefit, but for your benefit. And then the last Part here, another three. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now is the hour. And so, again, the response of the people here is, is, is we read it beneath, um, he said this to, to clearly indicate what kind of death he was going to die. And his disciples, uh, the crowd responded, we've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They were not ready for this kind of king, this kind of Jesus. Jesus replied, the light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness may not overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so you may become the sons of light. This is Jesus' final challenge. This is his final words that he speak in public. He challenges them. 
you have a choice. You can walk in the darkness or you can walk in the light. What are you going to do? If you walk in the light, you'll become the sons of light. But the response to that is not good. When Jesus said these things, he went away and hid himself from them. Although Jesus had performed so many miraculous signs before them, they still refused to believe him. And then we have some words which are kind of shocking. So the word of the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled. He said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn to me and I would heal them. Does that strike you as kind of strange? Can you read that? Like um, God's blinding their eyes just in case they would believe, just to stop them believing, because then he would have to heal them. Does that sound strange to you? Well, it should do. It should do because it's designed, if you look at where it is originally, it's ironic. Let me give you like a picture of it. Supposing you've got a little child and they won't eat up their food. You know, they're, they're, they're just very slow about it. And you say to them, I've got some wonderful dessert here. And you finish eating up, you can have your dessert. And they're sitting there, no, no. And you say, so you change, change tactics. You say, no, don't, don't eat your food. Because if you eat your food, I'm going to have to give you this amazing dessert. And we wouldn't want that, would we? And so it's like, it's like kind of provoking them to, to believe. And this in the context of Isaiah is what's happening. Because God wants them to believe. His heart is passionate for them to believe. He wants them to. But he says it in this way to, um, to draw out, to draw them out and to challenge them. Look, you could believe here. Now, on the, on the other hand, there is a way, there is an aspect to it that they can't believe without God's spirit. Because we have a blindness and God's spirit is needed to take the blindness away. So we have two truths here. And ultimately, we cannot reconcile them this side of eternity. But one truth is we are responsible to believe. It is our choice. Jesus gives us the choice and we are responsible to believe. And if we don't, it is our fault. And and there's there's nothing that takes away from that in this passage. But on the other side, belief is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. And it's his spirit enables us to believe. And what those two things that joins those things two together is grace. Because God graciously pours out his spirit. And so what we're going to see is that verse 40 is true before Pentecost. But after Pentecost, God pours his spirit out in abundance. You know, just the very first sermon, thousands are saved. And the gospel goes out like fire spreading across the world. So, but nevertheless... The, the question here that's being raised is, why did Jesus' ministry on earth receive such a poor response? Why didn't they respond to him? What was going on there? And so it, it goes on to the, the next, the last verses there. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess Jesus to be the Christ so that they would be not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise from men more than the praise from God. 
So once again, it's saying this is the real, this is the real blindness. Wanting the praise of men more than the praise from God. So let's, um, let's just ask the question then. Why was Jesus' ministry such a failure? Apparently. There were so few people who were there. Like who at the end there was really with him? Like even if his own disciples, Judas wasn't. And okay, Mary was, Martha was, Lazarus was. But you know, what? After all of these signs, even amongst his own disciples, they really didn't get him. How can we explain this? So uh, apparently it's miracles don't make people believe. And if you think that people are going to believe because of miracles, you're wrong. It's the spirit that will make people believe. And while it's miracles are good, and, you know, we want people to see things, is people's hearts have to change. And sometimes people become Christians on the, the smallest external evidence because God touches their hearts and they're saved. There is a real choice here. There is a real choice that people have. And so I'd just like to rephrase the, the Isaiah passage. He's blinded their eyes by reluctantly accepting their decision and hardened their hearts by not overriding their own choice to harden so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their heart and turn to me and I would heal them. But oh, he's longing that they would. Oh, he's longing that they would. And the time will come that they will. My heart is breaking for them that they would not hear my longing. So then we come to Jesus' final challenge here. Jesus cried out, the one who believes in me does not believe in me, but in the one who sent me. And the one who sees me sees the one who sent me and have come as a light to the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not obey them, I do not judge him. For I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not accept my words has one judging them. The words I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For of myself I have not spoken, but the Father himself who sent me has commanded me what I should say, what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. So whatever I speak... Just as the Father told me, so I speak. I want you to just get Jesus' heart here. Just be with him as he says these things. And his heart is breaking at the way these people are rejecting him. Oh, he says, just can't you see that I'm, it's God, it's the Father who sent me. I've come to bring you light. I'm not coming to judge you. I'm not being judgmental here. It's, it's, it's whether you believe my words that are going to end up being your judgment. I haven't come. I've come to save you. I've come that you will have life. And so he brings these words to them. And these words, if you like, are an echo of how John's gospel starts. In the beginning was the word, and Jesus is ends there talking about his words. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And then we have the reference to verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not mastered it. And then verse 9 
The true light which enlightens everyone has come into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And that's the point, the middle point of this introduction, and then we work back. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. So let's go back to our passage. And what I want to do here is I want to bring you to Jesus in this passage, and I want you to engage with Jesus. And I want you to see him in these different steps. He was there coming to Martha's house, and Mary poured this credible ointment on his feet. And you see him, and he's not recognized by most people, but Mary gets him. And then he comes to Jerusalem, and he just rides a little donkey, and they have this huge show for him, but his heart is breaking because they don't get him. They think he's somebody that he's not going to be. And then he comes into the city, and there's these Gentiles want to know about him. And, oh, this means the end is coming. And he can feel the shock of this. Oh, my hour has come. And he challenges them. He says, look, this, what you're going to see now, there's no fruit until I die. And that's when the harvest is. But, you know, if you really want to follow me, you have to be with me in that. What do they think about that? As soon as he starts talking about dying, about being lifted up, that's when they start turning away. Did you notice? That's when they start asking questions, when he talks about him dying, because they don't want a savior that does that. They don't want a savior that does that. And I want to, um, I want to just go back to our challenge for you. And I'm just going to ask the worship team to come up now. We're going to end with this challenge. Where are you on this spectrum? And I'm now putting at the top. We don't know where Mary is. We can put Mary here together. But those willing to die with Jesus. Those willing to die with Jesus. And then we have disciples who just didn't understand, didn't really get him. We have the rulers who believe, but they're not comfortable with committing. We've got the crowds who want him to be their kind of king, the Pharisees who want to kill him, and Lazarus, and Judas, who is the, the epitome of being blindness. A couple of things. First of all, this is one of the strongest pieces of evidence for Christianity. This is one of the strongest things. Historically, at the point where Jesus died, nobody was following him hardly. They'd rejected him. That's what happened. If Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, there would be no Christianity. Can you imagine what would have happened? They would be gone. The fact that we have this um, huge spread of Christianity across the world can only explain, be explained by one thing, that Jesus really did get raised from the dead and the Spirit was poured out. That the harvest he talked about was true. But I want us to walk through with him then and, and just how do you react to Jesus? As, as I hear him speaking to me, I must admit that I find it hard when he says to me, I died to bring forth fruit. Andrew, you're going to have to die. Like, that doesn't sound very nice. Yeah, but 
you just trust me. It's a death to yourself because I'm going to bring you far more. What does that mean, Jesus, that I have to die? Well, it means that you, you, when you have a choice, you do your will or my will or something that's going to please you or something that's going to please me. You choose my way. Okay, Jesus, but does that mean that I won't be happy because I'm not choosing my own happiness? No, Andrew. It means that actually you'll be happier because I can give you complete joy. I can give you what you could never get elsewhere. In fact, if you follow these other things, you'll destroy your life. But you know, I can give you such a life that everything else will pale in comparison. Do you see me, Andrew? Can you see me? Do you get me? And he's asking you that now. Do you get me? Who are you with in this passage? Are you with these people who didn't get Jesus? Are you with Judas? Who, you know, you come to church and you see stuff, but ultimately, nah, that's not for me. Who are you with? I want to challenge you. Because this is the most important question you can have. Are you willing to be with Jesus? To follow him? And, you know, even if you're a Christian, and you know, most of us are here Christians this morning, but where are you on this spectrum? Are you going to completely follow him? Follow him 100% and say, Jesus, I get you. I'm like Martha. I'm willing to give $50,000 of the most expensive thing I have just to show my love to you. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that Jesus is asking you to do that right now, but Jesus may be calling you to do something different. But it's extravagant and it's costly. And that is what Jesus is calling you into. And not everybody who's a Christian follows Jesus like Mary did. But understand that. But there is this possibility. And the more that you do that, the more that you receive. The more you give him, the more you receive. And so this is a very personal challenge from Jesus this morning. Jesus says, do you get me? Do you get me? Do you get me like Martha did? Do you see who I am? Do you, do you believe me when I say I've died because that brings forth fruit? If you follow me, you'll get something just amazing. Do you trust him in that? So let's pray. Jesus, we, we want to see you. We want to not be blind, but open our eyes, Jesus, with your spirit. They will see what an amazing, extraordinary person you are. The very God of very gods. Giving your life for us who deserve nothing. Pouring your life out because you love us. Lord, we pray that your light in us a fire of love for you, that will do anything for you, because truly we see you. Take our blindness away. Take every vestige of blindness away that we'll see you in your beauty and we'll just run to you and never let you go. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ.